frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Don't you understand, George? It's because you were not born. Film church. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. What gift do you think a good servant has that separates them from the others? It's the gift of anticipation. And I'm a good servant. I'm better than good. I'm the best. I'm the perfect servant. I know when they'll be hungry and the food is ready. I know when they'll be tired and the bed is turned down. I know it before they know it themselves. Hello and welcome to Film Church Radio, the podcast that treats cinema as a religion. It's Sunday. I am Brandon. And I am Lewis. He's back! (laughs) Uh, And we're here to talk about movies. Each week, except for the last three weeks, Lewis (laughs) and I alternate picking a film for us both to watch and discuss. Uh, But... We're doing it different again today. We've got Zach back, and he has brought a film for us to worship. What is the film, Zach? Uh, The film that I brought today is Gosford Park uh, from 2001, directed by Robert Altman. Sweet. Thank you for bringing this to us. Is this uh, an old favorite of yours, one that you've seen several times? Yes. Um, this is the first Altman film that I ever saw. Um, my parents were big Altman fans. And um, like they've been watching his film since the 70s. And uh, this came out ar- around the time I was kind of pinned my key years of getting into movies as being like between 1999 and uh, 2003. Like, th- like that chunk right there is like, a lot of important films to me personally. And so this is interesting because earlier today I was kind of, I was kind of getting mentally prepared for this. And I was like, why did I pick this movie? Because I have other Altman films that I would say I like more than this. There are other films from the year 2001 that I like more than this. But as my introduction to Altman, who's kind of an important director to me, it felt like something special to share. And I kind of like also that, that international sort of thing, since Lewis is now relocated to England, um, and that this is kind of a, a cross-cultural film, right? It's an American filmmaker making a British movie. Um, and there's elements of that to, in there, of the, you know, the American who's sort of lost and confused about this lost British culture. Yeah, that's awesome. I was, that's literally, you literally touched on exactly what I was hoping you would touch on, which was why did you pick it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I had to think of it, but I had to kind of think hard. It's like, why did I pick this? But yeah, nice. Um, Of course, you got to listen to the end of the episode if you want to know what we're watching next week, because every Sunday we've got a different film. Um, and it's going to be Lewis's pick next week, so excited to find out what the heck it's going to be. <laughs> uh, of course, we want to say thanks uh, to everybody who has been listening to the show. Um, please subscribe 
If you haven't already, hit that bell on Spotify to be notified every Sunday. Um, we're on all good podcast platforms. Um, but yeah, thank you to everybody who's been listening to the show and following it. Please share it with your friends. Um, let them know that they can find us. Um, if you just go to filmchurchradio.com, that pushes you to our Spotify site where it's got all the different podcast platforms you can listen to us on. We're also on social media at Film Church Radio. Um, and yeah, if uh, you could leave us a comment and review, um, that would be helpful. And yeah, thanks. Thanks, everyone. It's time to worship now. Um, well, pre-worship. So before we discuss the film, we're going to have our little trailer section where we talk about other things, um, other films, other things not necessarily related to our feature presentation show which is gosford park um but yeah i think we're just going to kind of we don't have um specific films we're going to talk about where we're just going to kind of have a little chat about maybe the state of the movie industry right now like what's going on with the the writer's strike and the actor's strike and i did watch um all of those Hobbit videos <laughs> that you told me to, Zach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which has all of the like all the craziness of you know the actors' strike that was going on in New Zealand at the time, which was crazy, and how it just it did not turn out well for them at all. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, um, I actually watched the, all those videos twice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, those uh, are, uh, that's a pretty concise series, that those yeah. three videos. And I, I think I may have done the same thing. I remember watching them as they were coming out. So, uh, because they didn't all drop at once, you know, it was like once a week or something like that. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, and then once they were all out, I remember having to, I just was like, I got, I got to watch them all in one sit through, you know, yeah. to, to, to get the full experience. What, what's yeah. her name again? Just to shout out her channel. Uh, Lindsay Ellis. I don't okay. think she updates too often anymore. Um, yeah, uh, but she's got very good, like in-depth, like essay video essays. Mm-hmm. It's basically a documentary that she made, but yeah. Yeah. Um, she has a lot of, a lot of video essays. Uh, so some of it uh, doesn't necessarily cross with my interests like she does kind of she's done a lot of stuff with about like uh some of the disney renaissance musicals which mm-hmm. i'm kind of like eh. but they're, they're still interesting like subjects that she kind of gets into um uh, and then but then she has a couple of videos like that hobbit one that are just uh like knocking it out of the park you know yeah yeah um i know earlier this summer lewis you tweeted like the uh I can't remember exactly what you tweeted, but it was something like, uh, does this feel like, does anyone else feel like this is the summer that that will like make or break movies or something? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you feel now that we're like reaching the end of the summer? I feel like it's, it's a very, I feel like it's a pivotal time. I mean, if we look back at, you know, post COVID and the kind of going back to the cinema and the you know it's been kind of film after film that's been touted as saving the cinema experience, you know, which is great, which is rightly so. But the the trouble with those is that the films are coming 
you know, within months of each other. So you hit a lull, the cinemas kind of have to kind of fight that back and then come up with new ways. Um, Barbie and Oppenheimer coming out at the same time has been, I mean, all I've seen is like record-breaking numbers from theatre chains across the UK and the US. Yeah. Um, because of that, which is incredible. The, the, the worry now is like, how do we sustain that? Um, like how yeah, do we make that's sure a hard business to like, yeah. keep, keep like just as a business owner, like how are you supposed to like keep the staff that you need and the inventory that you need and things yeah. like that for when big things hit like this, if the rest mm-hmm. of the time it's like dead. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's, it's come at the time where we had mission impossible, um, come out like what two weeks before these two massive films so even that doesn't feel like it's had a proper theatrical run i feel like if that had been released six months ago it would have been in cinemas for seven eight weeks and instead now it's already gone down to one or two showings a day in its fourth or fifth week i think um which you know i mean it's it's not a bad thing It's, it's good to open up and like have a look at the cinema show show times and be like wow there's six films on here that i want to see which is, you know, hasn't yeah. happened for I don't know how long. Um, but obviously, you know, with the cinemas doing well, the other thing that is is pivotal at this point is the is the SAG actors strike that's going on. Yeah. Um, that is very important for the future of of acting and, and kind of cinema as we know it. So um, for anybody that doesn't really know, we can jump into it a little bit. I'm sure everyone's kind of here, read a little bit and knows a little bit about what's going on, but... With the changing face of, especially with AI, um, that's happening in the movie industry, um, there's some strikes that are going on, basically to say that there needs to it needs to be regulated, and that there needs to be things in place not to get rid of it altogether, just to make sure that actors aren't losing out on jobs. You know, because it's cheaper to have a robot do a, a first draft or whatever. Yeah, um, which is also feels like a very a very weird and like futuristic thing to be happening. You know, it's, it feels very um, strange that this is something that is like the forefront of everyone's attention right now. Yeah. Well, and um, uh, the, the other big component of both strikes is the streaming component. Mm-hmm. Streaming as it relates to residuals, because, you know, uh, with television, broadcast TV, if you are a, a, an actor in a, an episode of, you know, CSI, if that episode airs and, and nobody watches it, you still got a check. Yeah. Um, and shows don't, obviously cable still exists. So shows do air, but um, you have, if you have a show that's only available to stream on a, on a service like Hulu or Netflix, uh, those residuals of, uh, the show that that episode airing, or you know, here in every episode, the show you don't get any money from 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 that, and they haven't no. worked that out. Yeah. So that's a big uh, part of it. And yeah. um, uh, I, I mean, I know that the the guilds both have their answers of how to resolve that, and it seems like it's just going to be a question of whether or not the studios accept that uh, resolution, which I think uh, I don't think I took a close look at the SAG uh, stipulations, but I I know that I think it was the Writers Guild had something where it was like, basically you cut writers in on 
your subscription money. You know, if, if mm-hmm. a show is a Netflix exclusive, then some percentage or, or percentage of a percentage of subscription money needs to go to everybody who yeah. is involved in that project. Yeah. That yeah. would, that, that equivalent to what they would get if the movie or the show aired on network yeah. TV. Yeah. I, I, there was an interview on the um, Komodo Mayo podcast um, recently with the, um, I think he's the vice president um, of SAG maybe. Um, I'll, I'll have to just look it up just to make sure. But he was saying that the, the trouble is now that when these demands are meant, especially with the like the streaming services, mm-hmm. that they they can kind of retaliate by you know upping the price of these <laughs> yeah. um, streaming services and kind of blaming what's happening right now on on the actors and the writers and being like, right. hey, to be able to pay everyone, you're going to have to pay us an extra seven dollars a month, hypothetically, to get this content. Um, and it's just going to turn into like a very messy kind of mudslinging thing. When in reality, yes. it should be like, let's just, people should be paid for the job that they do. Right. Um, and if they're working on streaming services, they should be paid for the same as if it's working on TV. You know, it, it, it's all, Yeah. to me, it all seems to be rolled into the same ball. I mean, there's, there's um, stories of actors, for example, that have worked one day on a, on a film for like two hundred dollars, and their mm-hmm. likeness has been captured, yeah. and then they've been digitally added in the background of other scenes for no, I mean, for nothing, for no additional, yeah, payment, because it's just now like, oh, there's no rules to govern this at the moment, so we can yeah. use it. I mean, in the Flash movie, the um, <laughs> it's not really a spoiler when they looked at the like went back in time and kind of yeah. saw the other iterations, the original Flash, the the actor that was there tweeted like i didn't even know i was in this movie <laughs> until i was sitting in the cinema and there i was oh yeah and it's just yeah it, and i insane. heard that their excuse for that was it wasn't actually him it was a, a it was a likeness of the actual comic book version of the character mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll, well they'll come up with any excuse yeah, yeah. that i mean that, that just reminds me though of uh I think it was Gwyneth Paltrow who was in one of the Marvel films where she was like, I didn't know I was in this one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, it's like I, I she filmed everything like <laughs> yeah. in a week yeah, or it's, something. It's, and, on, yeah. uh, it's on the chef show. Yeah. It's on uh, the chef show, John Favreau's show. It's like the first uh-huh. episode where he, they're like making soup together. Uh-huh. And he's like, you know, when we did Spider-Man or whatever, she's like, Spider-Man? <laughs> I wasn't in Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Like, hey, she, she's she's yeah, she gonna was. be she's gonna be renting out her uh, like bungalow on Airbnb or something. Oh wow! Go. <laughs> if you want to <laughs> pay some exorbitant fee yeah. to, to be, be some uh, bone broth to be Gwyneth Paltrow's guest, you can <laughs> maybe maybe hash it out with her. <laughs> uh, oh, I'll just make her solve watch this, Spider-Man. Solve this. Yeah. This, this right, look, I'm putting. Look, I'll let you put the Spider-Man disc in the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. I'll show you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean the AI thing just—it's—it's it's strange and it's creepy. And, yeah. Um, there was a—I saw a, a tweet from, or maybe it was just a, a quote from a—I think it was a Warner Brothers executive, but I may be maybe wrong on that. But they had basically said in an interview that this strike had saved them millions 
because they weren't paying anyone. And it's just mm-hmm. like, how tone deaf can you be to the situation? Yeah, like, exactly. If you stop making movies altogether, you're going to save trillion. You know, you're going to save billions of dollars because well, you won't I'm... be making any movie. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. Like, such a yeah. silly thing to say. Yeah. I mean, the um, I was listening to Mark Bernardin and Kevin Smith talk about Barbie earlier today, and they were talking mm. about how... Uh, <laughs> I, I guess for, as far as the writers' uh, guild goes, they've they've announced that they're they've they're setting a meeting to set a meeting. So right. it's just like, uh, yeah. but they said that they feel like Barbie has something to do with that because they're realizing, oh well, we do need our actors to start promoting the films that are going to be coming out yeah. soon, yeah. because. The actors for yeah. Barbie were promoting the movie like months and months and months in advance. Uh-huh. And yeah. if their their actors are striking, then yeah. Well, the the not that it's like a much anticipated movie in my book, but the Gran Turismo movie has been pushed back by two weeks because they said that exact same thing that they haven't got any of the actors to promote it. So they, you know, yeah. at, at this point, it's just like we, you know, it's well, dependent on. Potentially, publicity. that's why. I mean, you know, the Flash movie came out before the actor strike, but they didn't have any of the actors to promote it mm. because of all the controversy around Ezra yeah. Miller. And it's like, you know, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, I mean, I guess there's no way, real way to measure like whether or not that's the reason for the movie yeah. not doing well. But like, um, I mean, the success to Barbie has got to have something to do with the amount of publicity. Yeah. For sure. For that many people to kind of keep going. It's been an all-out assault, yeah. um, which is great. I mean, because it's got people in the cinema. I mean, the knock-on effect to this, which, um, you know, I fully support um, the strike and everything. I think it's great. It's just that we seem to be at a point in cinemas where it's like, okay, this is, you know, record-breaking numbers, but we're not going to have content or films to put out, you know, as regularly because it's just putting a stop to everything that's in production you know, everything that's going on right now, it's kind of put a halt to it. So we're going to reach a point again, like we did post-COVID, you know, after the first kind of lockdown where everything stopped, that the films that we get are just going to dry up. And I think the yeah. studio should be thinking ahead about that as well. Yeah. You know, there's, because like you said, there's streaming, the cinemas, there's TV, there's, you know, social media stuff that they've got to promote and put out. And it's like, it's an endless chasm of content that they need to fill. And they can't fill it without writers and actors. Yeah. So I hope they do something quick and give them what they want so that, you know, everyone can be paid for the job that they do. Yeah. Well, they're going on like 100 days for the writer's strike. It's about to be 100 days. Yeah. Or it will have been already 100 days by the time this airs. Yeah. (laughs) I I do not have faith in... uh... No. the the um uh, the the studios taking uh, the right lessons from the success of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, I think I've already seen the CEO of Mattel kind of like announce like all of these projects that they want to do, and I'm like I I don't that that isn't what made barbie a hit <laughs> what what yeah. the what you what you appear to to think yeah um yeah so yeah well and two it's like okay 
Yeah, like it's it's good news that like the big movies of the summer are not franchise movies. Yeah. But at the same time I'm like but they're going to do Barbie too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, like, but but is Greta Gerwig going to do Barbie? Too? Probably not. Well, no, I don't yeah. know. Uh, I mean, no, probably she, not. I think, she, but like, I think she's already signed up to do something for Netflix. So yeah, um, but like, you know, um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, and and, and you know, it, it's it might not even have the same actors in it. So right. I, I mean, I I think the success of those two films really kind of comes down to the fact that they are different from most of the slop that Hollywood has been putting out. Yeah. Um, it's something new and uh, they don't, I think audiences have gotten uh, kind of tuned in to, um, okay, if, if I want to see this movie, I got to see it now because it's going to be a while before it's on streaming. Yeah. Um, Disney seems to have had the opposite effect where they've kind of trained their audiences to go, it's going to be on Disney plus in four months. Yeah. So I'll wait, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that people don't, people don't know when they're going to be able to see Barbie and Oppenheimer and they both have a event movie kind of feel to them. Barbie is like, Oh, you know, dress in pink and, some theaters have the big Barbie box that you can stand in yeah. and take a picture in. And, um, uh, Oppenheimer has this uh, format kind of event aspect mm. to it where, oh, you got to see it in IMAX or uh, it's on film, you know. Um, yeah, and, that makes well, people, and that makes people excited to go and see it because it's not Ant-Man 4 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or even The Flash. I mean, you know, well, it's... Also, the crazy thing that I, I realized recently about Oppenheimer. I mean it's a it's a Christopher Nolan film, right? Right. And he's like uh people he's known now as one of the greatest directors, right? Yeah. Especially like living directors. Um and there's kids right now, like nineteen year olds, that are going to see the movie and mm -hmm. it's their first Nolan mm. film to see okay. in a theater. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they've been hearing about Nolan, or they've seen right. Nolan films. Yeah, you know, right. they've seen Interstellar and Inception and The Dark Knight at home, mm -hmm. but they've never, you know, and they know that like <clears throat> Nolan is like considered this cinema god, um, mm -hmm. th who's who's someone who's you have to see in in a cinema, and they're now at an age where they can go see a Nolan film because mm -hmm. Tenet came out during COVID. Right. And what was before that? Dunkirk. Dunkirk, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. which um, they would have been, I mean, that was like 2017 or 2016. Yeah, know, They were like still young. Right. Young, young, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of crazy. It was kind of crazy because... That's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't yeah. like considered uh, that or thought yeah. of that. Yeah, it's um, only because uh, I'm working with a lot of teenagers <coughs> right now. So. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, I also think that that kind of comes into why last year the two really successful movies. You know, we us, we kind of talk about like uh, fatigue over like uh, more superhero movies or more sequels mm -hmm. because we've seen like Mission Impossible Seven or Eight, whatever, whichever number yeah. it is. 
the response to it has been kind of lukewarm in the most recent Fast and the Furious movie, same, whereas the previous two films in those series were very popular. But mm. the two big movies last year were both sequels, Top Gun Maverick and Avatar The Way of Water. But they were sequels to movies that came out years but you know, they yeah. still felt like, it felt like, oh, yeah, I remember Top Gun, yeah. you know, <laughs> or like, or, you know, I remember seeing Avatar. So there was there was still a, a novelty to them. The fact that you hadn't been bombarded with Top Gun and Avatar for years yeah, or multiple times a year, the way all these other series do um, yeah. where you get, where it's easy to get sick of them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it also helped. I, I think the, it, it's not only that, but it's, it's that like the movies that hit also deliver. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're good movies. I also want to point out, um, not that it was a breaking box office, well, I should say, it wasn't breaking like global or even domestic box office records, but Asteroid City, I think yeah. it's it's the highest grossing movie of Wes Anderson's career. Yeah. If I remember and even, correctly. And even so, that was put onto streaming within three pretty, weeks. Yeah. Yeah. It was like three or four weeks. It yeah. was pretty quickly. And it was still getting butts in seats yeah Yeah. so um that and that was another thing too was i think uh it was was pointed out recently someone said elemental which i think it still hasn't made enough money (laughs) but but is do it has a surprising amount of legs i actually went and saw elemental a week or two Mm. ago on a weekday and the theater was half full. That's great. <laughs> and this movie yeah. had been out for a month, you know. So um, now a movie like that, it doesn't. It's not helpful if a if a movie that costs two hundred fifty million or however much it costs to make, yeah. it's, it's not helpful if a movie like that has those kind of legs. It is good when a Wes Anderson movie has legs because it's like, yeah. okay, you know, made back its budget <laughs> and then some. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and um, shows that audiences are also, again, interested in something different that delivers. Yeah, it's going to be great to see that, you know, the top movies of the year in terms of box office are going to be made by these very singular filmmakers. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, studio films, which I hope is the case. You know, we're going to have Barbie and Oppenheimer up towards the top. Mission Impossible. Like I said, it's done good business. It's not, you know like a, a failure by any stretch of the imagination, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully Wes Anderson will be up there as well because, you know, it's just great to have these, I don't know, these really interesting people making these movies and have them do really well. Yes. Instead of just, you know, getting them on streaming and kind of, because I feel like Noah Baumbach's now is kind of stuck with like this Netflix contract that he's got. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was kind of, it worked really well at the beginning of COVID when Marriage Story came out and then got all the Oscar nominations and kind of like, cause it was, that was how we were watching films at that point. Right. And then we got white noise mm-hmm. that is literally just, it was just like white noise. <laughs> it just kind of faded <laughs> it, into it the was, background. Yeah, yeah. And nobody and, talked about it. And it was in theaters for a week. And I, Almost I didn't even know it was in theaters. Yeah. I almost Netflix was doing this where they were, they did this with with uh, what was the Knives yeah. Out sequel? Uh, yeah, they they did it where they yeah. released Glass it for me. for like a week, 
but like mm. two months before it <laughs> came to Netflix. So I remember hearing all this buzz about it months before it was on Netflix. On Netflix. By the time it came out on Netflix, nobody was talking about it. The buzz had no, died down yeah. because because it was only in theaters for a week. And it was like yeah. the perfect opportunity for Netflix to keep a film in theaters for a decent run. Yeah. Um, yeah. To lead up to the eventual yeah. streaming premiere. I'm very interested to see how Apple TV are going to handle Killers of the Flower Moon. It's getting, an, it's getting an IMAX release. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, hopefully we get a, you know a sustained cinema run before it's on streaming because it could be another you know. I mean, all the trailers are in cinemas yeah. right now. So yeah, I am getting the feeling that they are gearing for a, a sort of standard theatrical run, which for a so. three and a half hour long you know movie. <laughs> Might still be kind of short, but um, yeah. I don't think it's going to be in and out in a week. It's gonna yeah. you're going to have opportunities to see it. So I think the way I think what what would be interesting for Apple TV to kind of get kind of have the cake and eat it too would be to have this like theatrical run where it's you know a lot of promotion, but then around the same time drop like a very like in depth kind of making of documentary on Apple TV Plus. So that when you've seen it, you can go and watch mm-hmm. the documentary and get that, you know, yeah, and kind of balance it together. Yeah. Especially with Scorsese, he's so like you. I want to know how he works. You know, everybody yeah. knows DiCaprio's in it, De Niro's in it. You know, it's this based on a book. There's so many things that you can go into that would be really interesting to have as like a, it could you know half an hour, forty five minute documentary, but it would get me to get Apple TV. Yeah, they. They also just don't have a lot of stuff, right? No, they don't. It's very limited, yeah. Right. So it seems like giving their stuff, if they they give movies more meteor theatrical runs, seems like, I don't know, that would would make them stand out among the competition. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. There's there's a... uh, like a PBS uh, documentary from 1979 or 1980 called "The Day After Trinity" about Oppenheimer and the and the the the, t- the test um, mm-hmm. explosion that has been streaming on Criterion Channel for I don't know months now, um, and uh, it's now like it's popped up on their most popular. Yeah. films because <laughs> yeah. because people are like oh i uh, like because people who are in the there's like old men talking in this old documentary who are characters in the movie yeah <laughs> you yeah. know so you see the movie and then you're like oh that's what that guy really looks like and sounds like <laughs> and hearing them tell the stories is very interesting so uh, having that supplemental stuff people go to it you know people jump to go watch that stuff for sure so yeah and obviously, there's people that watch that or that collect, you know, the boutique Blu-ray with, mm-hmm. that is just for the special features most of the time. You know, we've seen right. the film, we want the making of and the commentaries and stuff like that. I feel like that's where streaming can deliver, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's what Criterion Channel are really good at because they do, mm-hmm. they present those as well. Um, right. And it's, you know, 
come away from the content to fill the chasm and more towards, you know, just ha- showing them in the correct way, giving you a little bit more than just the film, I think yeah. should be potentially the way forward. And it's a cheaper way of making content, right? You just hire a, a documentary crew to make like a making of on the set. And it's like, cool, that's cheaper than getting sets and actors and, you know, all that kind of stuff to make a six-part TV series that no one's <laughs> going to watch. Now, the bigger studios don't like doing that, though, because no, they, don't no. want, they, don't, they don't want the, the dirty little secrets, or the, <laughs> the squabbles, yeah. the squabbles yeah. and the fights. They don't want you to know what creative differences actually yeah. means. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But speaking of Apple and physical media, though, like, I feel like Apple should and could make amazing physical media for some of these movies. Because, like, we've all opened some kind of brand new Apple packaging. It's always super Mm. sexy. Yeah. Imagine what that Apple 4K Blu-ray would look like, you know? Yeah. Well, they, they have one movie in the Criterion Collection, so that's always a sign... It's a documentary about the Velvet Underground, directed oh, okay. by Todd Haynes. Um, but it's like, oh, well, okay. So it makes you go, oh, so Apple maybe is developing a relationship with Criterion to get their yeah. films released. But also Todd Haynes, the director, has a, a film or two already in the Criterion collection. So maybe it was just his relationship with them that got yeah. them that. I don't know. Scorsese has a lot of movies in the Criterion collection. So he does. I'm um, sure they'll be clamoring for this one. But I mean, the other thing is like, I know that I myself was part of this when they started announcing, especially the partnership with like Netflix and, and that mm-hmm. Apple TV one was a bit like, why, why are we doing it on like a kind of a 4k release? You know, like a really top of the state, you know, top of the art um, disc with loads of extras and stuff. And then I think it was a week ago that Netflix are going to take off the power of the dog. I think from so, its streaming so, service. So, so I, I, I actually I saw that and I, I dug a little deeper into that because and it's not true. Well, no, it, it it's it's in your region. Yeah, <laughs> it will be leaving because it's going to like BBC player or something like okay. that. Okay, I play Because, yeah. be, yes, because the BBC uh, co-produced it. So part of the deal was that it would have a couple years on Netflix and then go to BBC okay. iPlayer. And I don't know how long, but it's yeah. not a, because it's not coming off uh, in the States. It's, it's it, Netflix is its home in the States. Yeah. So, um, but that does go into, you know, Disney uh, and I think Paramount. I don't know. I, all of these services have removed things yeah. that are um, exclusive to mm-hmm. their service. Um, now, I, I know there was like, I think like Paramount took one of their newer, they have like a, they've been putting out a lot of different Star Trek series. And one of them, I guess, wasn't really getting the views so they took it down but that does have a physical media release the disney stuff i don't think does at all the disney plus stuff yeah. like that no, that, no. that that stuff yeah. is that's gone yeah. willow the series <laughs> is gone yeah. for, you know mm-hmm. it's in the cloud yeah that's wild yeah 
There's too much content for the <coughs> streaming services to even keep on the platform there. Right. Yeah. The crazy thing is something like that could potentially have an audience that would yeah. find it years later. Well, isn't that the right. point of these places? So that people can discover what yeah. they want. It's just again, it's just the the corporation telling us what to watch. Yeah. And it's um it's gross. So Yeah. In short, no to big studio bosses making four hundred percent more than the lowest paid employee and uh and yes to to actors demands and physical media. <laughs> well, not that he is a studio head, but the movie that we're discussing today does have a Hollywood producer as a character. And we do yes. get to sort of see, you know, a kind of ineptness. Yeah. Not he's not inept, he's he's a, aloof. You know, he is a fish out of water in this particular setting. But we get to sort of get some background on his uh, method uh, through his phone calls that he makes, you know, about how a movie might be made or what kind of thoughts and processes go into it. Um, On the subject of of remakes, too, uh, this is something... I think one of the reasons I also chose this movie is when I saw this, I had no knowledge when i first saw it i didn't know who ivor novella was mm-hmm. i never heard of him so i was really fascinated by like oh there's a real like one of the characters in this movie is a real guy mm-hmm. um and i only learned this last night from listening to <clears throat> the commentary track with the screenwriter uh julian fellows is that when they are discussing the lodger in this film they're not talking about the silent film directed by Hitchcock. Ivor Norvello produced and wrote a remake of The Lodger for the sound when sound came in. Mm. And that film flopped. The, 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 the Hitchcock version was a hit. And a few yeah. years later, in this film is set in November 1932, and in the summer of 1932, his remake of The Lodger the sound remake came out and it was a huge flop. So that was like weighing on him. And I, I only just, I always thought like watching the movie, I was like, huh, that's interesting that this, that yeah. the lodger, I was thinking the silent film was, it was a flop, um, but it was actually a hit and they're talking about another one. Yeah. Cause I was going to bring this up cause I watched it with my family and, and, you know, obviously being a huge Hitchcock fan, they, you know, I say, no, it's the guy from The Lodger, you know, we mm-hmm. love The Lodger, it's mm-hmm. Hitchcock's kind of first Hitchcockian picture, you know, it's the first film yeah. where you can see him, like the director who's going to be. And when Maggie Smith is like, oh, it was a, yeah, it's a shame about The Lodger, mm-hmm. you know, and it not doing very well. My dad was like, did it not do very well? I was like, I'm pretty sure that, like, it was <laughs> well regarded, like, right. across the world. Like everybody yeah. kind of saw it and was like, the British cinema is kind of <laughs> progressing right, right, to right. this one <laughs> <Right>. film. <laughs> so I was going to actually, that was in my notes. I was going to bring that up because I was like, that doesn't track at all. <laughs> well, well. So, so should we use this as a segue into the... I think uh, it's a perfect segue. <laughs> yes. It's time now, as you might have guessed, to talk about our feature presentation. Gosford Park, 2001. 
Tea at four, dinner at eight, murder at midnight. In 1930s England, a group of pretentious, rich and famous gather together for a weekend of relaxation and a hunting resort. Uh, at a hunting resort, it's it's actually it's just a their house. It's the it's, yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so they they have a weekend hunting, but when a murder occurs. Uh, each one of these interesting characters becomes a suspect. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, so you, you've talked about the fact that you picked this um, and the reasons why. So mm-hmm. we know that you've seen it before. Mm-hmm. Brandon, was this ever on your radar? Have you seen this before? Did you kind of know about this film? <laughs> no. The end of the show. (laughs) Uh, No, uh, and I don't know that much about Altman. I I I haven't seen many of his films. I've seen The Player, yeah, and that might be it. Honestly, Um, that's the same for me. Yeah, like I I mean, I've heard people talk about him, but he he, The Player was good. Like I watched it in film school, and we analyzed it, and I was like, yeah, it's interesting, but it wasn't like you know. It was, to me, it wasn't like entertainment, you know. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, it wasn't like, oh, I got to see this guy's movies. Um, so yeah, not on my radar at all. And it wasn't a glass of hot milk for me. <laughs> it was kind what of is- luke lukewarm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I can see the greatness in it. You know, like mm-hmm. the, obviously, like. The attention to detail, the setting, the actors, the cinematography, the realism, all of it is really great. Um, but it is, it is a lot. Like, the movie is a lot. And, yeah. you know, the I watched it twice, and the first time didn't even really count, because I was like, I watched it when we first were going to record this, um, like a month ago, I watched it because I thought we were going to maybe record the next day. And I had just gotten off work, and I was just super tired. Mm-hmm. And that's not a state to be in to watch this movie, because no. you have to be like very um, uh, attentive. Um, yeah. And so it's like, even if you are attentive, I think it, it's, still, it's still a lot. There's a lot happening, um, and you don't quite know who you're supposed to follow and what you're supposed to pay attention to, um, which is, uh, you know, I I think it, I don't think it's it's necessarily. I guess what I'm trying to say is this movie's not for everybody, you know, <laughs> if uh, because it, it it's. It's very, you can enjoy this movie if you just, um, I think you just have to, it's not like another, it's not like any other movie. Like, you're not being spoon fed anything. Like, and you don't, I think I'm trained, and a lot of people might be trained to, especially like in American cinema, to, um, I don't know, for like the camera work, I guess, to kind of tell more of the story for you. Or like, um, you know, zoom in on something that's important, or like, you know what I mean? Like, there, there just to be more like little things that kind of subconsciously 
kind of help tell the story. Um, but there's there's so many characters and so much information that uh, the first time I watched it, I was just kind of, I don't know. I wasn't like totally sucked in. Um, the second time I appreciated it a lot more, but I still was like, man, there is there is so much going on in this movie that I know, like, if I keep watching it, I'm going to have a different experience every time. <laughs> yeah. You know? There's so much to this film. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I mm. think um, I think we need more movies like that. We need more movies that kind of keep on giving and don't. I mean, like we were talking about all the sequels and, you know, big budget yeah. studio movies that have come out the last few years. You know, some of them I'll watch once and be like, that was pretty good. But I have no interest in rewatching. This mm-hmm. is a movie that I know if I rewatch it, I will have a different experience every time. But I also am not sure that um, I want to anyway, honestly, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the characters are and the world is so like, you know, annoying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's like it's it's very it, it's. You know, it's it's a a big class structure difference. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the way that society was, and um, you know, it's just a lot of like despicable characters. So it's like, yeah. and and they're so real that it's just like, do I really want to like sit around and listen to these people talk for another two hours? Yeah. <laughs> um. But the, yeah, there is still a lot there to enjoy, and I'm sure I will watch it again. But um, but yeah, that's just kind of where I'm at with it right now, mm. at the moment. Uh, how about you, Lewis? What was your what was your kind of reaction to it, and what's your relationship with Altman? Yeah, I mean Altman himself, like you said, like you said, Brandon. I think I've only seen the player, and that was only what towards the end of last year. So there's not been a huge amount of Altman that I've that I've watched. I, I have Nashville um, on Blu-ray, but I haven't um, found the time to watch it yet, unfortunately. Um, with Gosford Park itself, though, this was a phenomenon when it came out in England. It was everywhere. Like, everybody was talking about it. I can remember we watched it when it came out on either VHS or DVD. I can't. It was around the time of, like, the, the switchover. Um, mm-hmm. We rented it, and I can remember... You know, watching it because um, Stephen Fry um, narrates the Harry Potter books in mm-hmm. for English audiobooks. So I had grown up listening to Stephen Fry and just like you know loving him basically. Um, yeah. So it was great to you know I wanted to watch it because of him. Julian Fellows, the writer, was the first screenwriter that I think I was aware of, like them being a separate entity. You know, he was he was a he seemed to be wheeled out a lot on like British talk shows and stuff yeah. Yeah. as like the big selling point of this film. It was, and, and in America too. I mean, yeah. The, the, there was, he was always kind of presented separate from Altman or they would mm. do stuff together. And I think that's because of what you were saying, Brandon, because so much of it is in the script. It's not the, it's not what we see. It's what others say, you know, yeah. the whole crux of the film about who, who murdered uh, Michael Gambon's character is 
basically told to us through dialogue, not directly, but like indirectly. You know, it's all kind of the twisty turny, and it's also the the the, comp- the tropes of the Agatha Christie murder mysteries just being absolutely destroyed. You know, the uh-huh. inspector coming <laughs> halfway through the film would normally call for a very well put together um investigation that includes like everybody being interviewed but this is not Mm -hmm. that this is just it's playing with those ideas that we already have to just to wrong foot us all the time you know you're looking for things that aren't there because it's at the end it's pretty it's a pretty simple like why did they do it you know but we're presented with all these different elements that our mind kind of is trying to piece them together to make sense and like keep reaching, you know. Um, I couldn't remember who did it. Um, I was pretty sure that it was Maggie Smith <laughs> due to money problems most of the way through. I was like, that would be a good way to do it, but it wasn't. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it was just such a big part of British culture around this time. It's crazy. It, it, that's interesting. It won the BAFTA for Brit- best yeah. British film. Yeah, it was huge. Because I watched it again with my parents and I said, do you remember when it came out and you know, how big it was? And they're like, oh yeah, it was like everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, yeah. so so this might be a good time for me to give you guys a little bit of like a, I'll try and be as short as I can with it, a, like a primer on Altman. Yeah. And I say I'll try to be as short with it and, and it's because he has a very long career. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he basically started working in movies in some capacity, like right after he got out of, uh, the service after world war two, he moved to LA, sold a couple of stories to RKO was frustrated with the way that they wouldn't let him, they weren't interested. This is, and this is like beginner's luck, by the way, he didn't have connections in LA from, uh, Kansas city, Missouri. And he loves Kansas city. Like, uh, going, leaving home to go to the war was, like, the first time that he left Kansas City and kind of saw the wider world. So he was, like, frustrated with the, he wasn't allowed to write the script. They wouldn't let him on set. So he's like, I'm going to go to New York and try and make it as a writer. Well, that success he had in L.A. with selling a couple of stories was beginner's luck, like I say. He didn't have any success in New York, so he moved back to Kansas City. And he started working for an industrial film company, editing and then directing industrial films for years. A local businessman was like, I want to make a film about teen delinquents. So this was Altman's shot at making a feature narrative film. So his feature debut is called The Delinquents from 1957. I've never seen it, but I think you can watch it on YouTube. (coughs) But it's successful. So he gets work in television um and directing tv shows and this is like where his attitude starts developing where he kind of likes doing things differently he likes filming things differently from what the standard is he's like more interested in background actors than he is in with his lead actors things like that this stuff always causes him to be butting heads with the people who hired him but he works quickly uh and he gets stuff done so he would like lose jobs a lot he'd get fired or he'd quit but there was always another offer coming around because they knew someone knew well we can always we can depend on that guy 
In the late 60s, he made a couple of features um, that I have not seen. Countdown and That Cold Day in the Park. They weren't really noteworthy films, but I'm eventually going to see them out of curiosity. But 1970 is like the year that Altman becomes Altman. That's the year of MASH. <clears throat> MASH is a 20th Century Fox film. It's an adaptation of a novel. It is a very mean-spirited satire about war. Um, and uh, it's a huge hit. Uh, gets Altman an Oscar nomination for Best Director. And it really is the start of his career. The 70s is like the key decade for Altman. From 1970 to 1979, Altman directed 13 feature films. Um, and uh, he was always a, like a hit with critics. Critics really liked his movies. Pauline Kael, especially, who was kind of like one of the biggest film critics of, the, of that era, was a real big champion of his work. Um, but as the decade goes on, the movies make less and less money. <clears throat> he always kind of depended on like the idea of having a hit every few years. Like Nashville came out in 75 and that was a successful film. Got him another couple more Oscar nominations and kind of sustained him for a bit. So keep making these smaller movies that didn't really make any money. But, uh, oh, and I should say he discovered, well, he didn't probably, but... Shelley Duvall was, her first film was a film of his, Brewster McLeod, which is my parents' favorite film. And she made seven films, I think, in total with Altman. Um, in the 70s, the only director she worked with was Altman. She did one Woody Allen movie and, and one Stanley Kubrick movie, The Shining. <laughs> and then the rest of it's all Altman. Um, <clears throat> in 1980, he makes Popeye. Uh, which is, I don't know if it was like a flop flop, but it didn't make the kind of money that the studio wanted it to make. And critics really tore it apart. Um, it, however, has been reevaluated. Like now, critics going back and looking at it like it. And if you go back and look, Ebert and Siskel and Ebert both liked it when it came out. So they gave it good reviews. Uh, it's, it's, it's had its comeback, but... Popeye was kind of like the death of his Hollywood career. And so the 80s is Altman is working completely independently. Um, most of his movies in the 80s are adaptations of plays. Um, they're very small scale compared to the stuff he did in the 70s. And uh, like, I mean, independently produced, independently um, distributed. And again, those movies are pretty well received. They don't make a lot of money, but... <clears throat> I think he was like teaching film at a college, a university at the time and supplementing his income with that. So The Player is a big movie because that is like his Hollywood comeback. Um, and then the it's he has back-to-back -back hits because The Player and then the year after that he has Shortcuts, uh, which is kind of a quintessential Altman film. So what's a, a quintessential Altman film is basically a large cast... There's no main character. There's intersecting storylines. Characters are talking over each other. There's uh, dialogue is overlapping. And the way he uses the camera, like you mentioned, uh, Brandon, 
as being quite different from what you usually see in American cinema. <laughs> His camera's kind of like a passive observer. Um, yeah. Uh, kind of taking a step back. So like a typical Altman film has these wide shots where it's the room and, and every, you know, there's like 10 people lined up throughout the room in the shot and they're all talking at the same time and you're catching bits and pieces of dialogue, you know? Um, so the player was kind of like a quote unquote comeback for him. <clears throat> and then throughout the nineties, he continued making films in this kind of same style. Uh, and then Gosford Park is almost like a, a third comeback or a second, comeback, another comeback. Yeah. Um, Gosford Park is, uh, comes out in 2001 and uh, I think it's the second highest grossing film of his career. Uh, another Oscar nomination. The film obviously won screenplay. Uh, and then he makes two, only two more films after that. The Company, uh, which is like a film about a dance group. And then A Prairie Home Companion. 2006 is kind of a, a big year for Altman because, one, he wins an honorary Academy Award. So he'd never won a competitive Oscar. Um, a little bit later that year, his final film, Prairie Home Companion, is released. And then a few months after that, I think in November uh, 2006, he passes away uh, at the age of, uh, what was he, 81, I think? Yeah, he was 81. <coughs> um, but like thematically, Altman is a guy who's interested in, I think, uh, he's associated with counterculture. So he's interested in like questioning authority, questioning kind of the status quo, turning it on its head, making fun of it. Um, obviously this movie deals very heavily with class structure, the upstairs and the downstairs. That's what, if you listen to any interviews with him and Julian Fellows, the writer, those are the terms, the specific terms that they use, the upstairs people and the downstairs people. Um, <clears throat> this film came out of, uh, Bob Balaban, who plays Weissman, the producer, calling him up and saying, uh, I would like to work with you. Can we work on something together? Because Balaban is a producer on this film as well. And so Altman, uh, as you pointed out, Lewis, he kind of takes all these Agatha Christie tropes and turns them on their head. He was like, I've never done a whodunit. I I, I would like to do a whodunit. A lot of Altman movies are genre movies, but like, I don't want to say making fun of the genre, but presenting it in a way that you don't expect. Mm. <clears throat> MASH is a war movie about doctors. They are the doctors who operate on soldiers. There are no battle scenes in MASH. The only blood and gore you ever see in the movie are scenes on the operating table and the movie ends with a football match. Um, it's about people who are in the army who hate being in the army. They're, they're forced to be in it. They have to be here. Um, the long goodbye is a film noir literally based on a, a, a Marlowe book, you know, a character that Humphrey Bogart played. Now he's played by Elliot Gould. And it's again, kind of like, taking noir elements and turning them on his head, on their head. 
Uh, he made a couple of westerns in the 70s that were Buffalo Bill and the Indians is a western that he made that is actually about the way that <coughs> Buffalo Bill and the Indians is about how we present the West and mytholo mythologize it in our entertainment and have been doing that for years or decades, you know. So he's interested in taking like a genre and cutting it open and pulling stuff out and rearranging things. Later interviews, he would describe Gosford Park as not really being a whodunit. It's more of a who the hell cares whodunit. <laughs> and I actually think yeah. that if you watch it again, if you ever <clears throat> sit down and watch it again, Brendan, I think going in with the approach that this film is full of details that you don't necessarily need to remember. It's kind of like go along, going along for the ride. Like I still don't remember half the characters' names, and I've watched it twice in the last month, and I'm still kind of like fuzzy on like the exact details of the marriages between like, the three sisters, and one's married to Michael Gamba, and one's the other thing, and I still kind of like don't remember all of those details. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that they're important to Altman. Um, so my enjoyment of the movie comes mostly from kind of being like being that passive observer. <clears throat> With this film in particular, one uh, neat thing that I didn't realize, I learned a lot from Julian Fellows' commentary, <laughs> yeah. is that... Um, the downstairs people, the servants, there is a servant in every single scene of the film. There's never a moment where there's not a servant. Yeah. If there isn't, they're on the other side of the door and they're about to knock. Yeah. Um, so the, the upstairs people are never alone. They're always essentially being watched. There's eyes and ears everywhere. Um, and the uh, they did talk about how the camera in particular in this, Altman almost wanted you to like have to like crane your neck to like to, to kind of peek like the camera's like peeking around the corner you know uh, in a lot of scenes um <clears throat> and um we actually enter the house through the downstairs entrance we don't go inside the house until kelly mcdonald goes into the house we follow her in um so it is kind of it, it's interesting that it to me that it's it, it is kind of uh, positioned as being from the perspective of the downstairs people. The film yeah. kind of aligns you with them, even though you're talking about like this movie's full of like crappy people. Even the servants, there's crappy, you know, some of those servants are assholes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, and we're kind of spying on uh, this yeah. world that I don't I don't think exists anymore I don't know um, to what extent uh, landed gentry still exist in um, uh, in England I know Julian Fellows comes from that world um, yeah I mean his his big I mean Gosford Park was his big and big thing until he did Downton Abbey right which is <laughs> Gosford Park without the murder <laughs> so <laughs> It's also and uh, well, because Maggie Smith's character, like I think they just changed the first Grantham yeah. to Trentham yeah. or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. So Gosford uh, 
Downton Abbey is like a spiritual successor to uh, Gosford Park, but I think that Downton Abbey, and I only watched the first season. I never kept watching it, or first series, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> and I think that it's not just without the murder. It's uh, I think the big difference between them, one of the big differences, is that I think Fellows... Julian Fellows would, in his commentary track, he would kind of acknowledge a lot of like the inequality and the problematic elements of the upper class people and that sort of thing. And these, these issues that they had, what was like wrong with this society. But I also think he's nostalgic for it. Mm. Yeah. Um, because he, if he had been born 20 years earlier, he would be in this movie, you know, he would be a, he would be in that world yeah. and, <clears throat> you know, would have, maybe he did have butlers and maids. I don't know um, when he was growing up, but uh, certainly his older relatives did. And he talks about how some of the characters are inspired by like my great aunt. And this was actually something that she said, you know, like yeah. the Maggie Smith character. He drew a <laughs> lot from older relatives on things that she would, uh, she would say, um, and uh, Altman is not nostalgic for this. I mean, not that he ever lived through it, but I think that his attitude towards this world would be things aren't that way anymore and good riddance. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Downton Abbey, I don't think, has that good riddance no. attitude to it. It is pure nostalgia. nostalgia. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to kind of yeah. live this uh, yeah. in this world as the landed gentry and the servants don't really have it that bad yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um yeah there's definitely you know the the hint of of kind of enjoying the gossip you know there's a lot of things mm -hmm. that happen in this film that you can imagine if the the upstairs people had found out they would really enjoy talking about it to other people and yes. you know, like who is um, having an affair with one of the maids? You know, right. who is you know creeping up back stairs? Who, which butler is having a cigarette on the back stairs when right. someone's coming out? You know, all this kind of stuff. There's a definite glee to kind of showing us these kind of um, dirty little secrets that are hidden right. throughout the house. Right. Because um, obviously, when we get to the big reveal and we we find out, you know. The, the big secret that's kind of tying all this together, um, it's it's incredibly shocking compared to the stuff that we've seen already. The, the yeah. other stuff is just kind of like, you know, just people being alone in a house together. Right. <laughs> Where that is like proper um, class differences and what people will do just to be able to live and like earn money. Yeah. You know? um, yeah, which is which is really interesting. I think the the one thing, and I want to thank my mum because she kind of pointed this out while we're watching it. She was like, um, "How would you go about directing these scenes with all these people in it? Because there's so many people hitting a mark, coming in to shop, mm -hmm. coming out, you know, going upstairs, coming down, having conversations, talking to somebody else." And I think that that's kind of the lens that I watched it through from then. Is kind mm -hmm. of the just how difficult this would have been to kind of to pull off because yeah. all these characters like like you said zach are constantly talking you know the the camera is constantly 
focusing on other people, but there's still people in the background that you're kind of watching. Um, it's it's incredible, really, kind of how this is all put together. And and if you do go back and watch it, I would say that that would be a good starting point in terms of for me. That's kind of when it really started to click, is when I watched just the technique behind the direction. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, I know this is something that Altman has done a lot before. Um, I know he did it with the player, uh, and I'm sure there were instances where he didn't necessarily follow this, but something that he did do with this movie is um, basically if cameras, if the cameras were rolling, everyone had to be in character. Um, and so because you didn't know if you were going to be in a shot mm-hmm. and everyone was mic'd up. So you, everything you say is going to be caught on mic. Um, so I think part of it is kind of establishing that uh, element where, okay, you know, once action is called, you're in character, but you are just working. Or if you're a, bu- you know, if you're a footman, you're just working. Or, you know, for this scene. And if you are one of the upstairs, you are lounging. And Fellows talks about how he's like, these parties were actually really, like, um, awkward. And they kind of show that through the Weissman character. Because, like, after dinner, there wasn't, like, a, like, okay, we're going to play charades now. There was no, there was no, like, like, center of attention. It was literally just... You were in the lounge, and you could you could just pick up a book and read, yeah. and, but but you were you had to be in there to so mm. you know, <clears throat> like Weissman is like trying to strike up conversations, and people don't want to talk to him, you know, and um, there's no there was no order to them, so you would just uh, I assume that the the actors are just okay. Well, what would my character be doing? Yeah, playing getting a bridge game going. Uh, Ivor Warner Vella would be playing at the piano, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think that is something that Altman as a director does. Is I think he puts a lot of faith in the actors knowing their characters and what their characters would do. Yeah. Because he also allows for improvisation. Um, he actually has said something to the effect of the screenplay is just a blueprint. I don't have to follow the screenplay. If the actors discover something or if we discover something while we're filming, that is what we're going to do, even if it's not in the script. Yeah, I did find it really interesting in the behind the scenes footage that Altman was talking about how, you know, when like when he got to the set, he would not read the screenplay. Mm -hmm. And he's like, the actors know their lines. (laughs) He's like, we're just going to shoot the scene. And then mm-hmm. he would, after the scene was done, he would turn to the script supervisor and be like, did we get everything that, like, plot point-wise mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. in there? Yeah. And she would be like, well, you know, somebody was supposed to talk about this part, about the murder, and and he would be like, oh, okay. But he still wouldn't look at it and be like, who was supposed to talk about the murder? Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Mm-hmm. We're going to do it again. <laughs> you know, make sure you talk yeah. about this. Yeah. And, you know, it's a very interesting way of working that is very... Um, you know, I think can only come with uh, having a track record of, you yeah. know, being, you know, being Robert Altman at almost, you know, however old he was. I mean, this is very late in his career. You know, this is yeah. 2001, 
and he died in 2006, right? So he was, right. He's in his mid 70s. Yeah. So like is. you know, because like I mean I I think at least for me as like a you know new indie filmmaker I would be like there's no way. You know, mm-hmm. I would have to have every shot, you know, storyboarded and, yeah. you know, I, mm-hmm. it would be so anxiety inducing to have all of these people and just be like, let's just do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and well, if you, you get know, it right, I'll know, you know, I'll the, see what I like after we get this take done, yeah. you know. The uh, the two lead actors of MASH, uh, Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland, tried to get Altman fired. On this Ma- movie? On From MASH. Oh, from MASH. Yes, um, because that was he was directing that way. Well, that's back, crazy back, to me. back then. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he was born in 1925. So how old was he? He was in his 40s, like yeah. early 40s, I think, when MASH um, was made. But he, he was not a, uh, you know, a name. Yeah, he was. But uh, he has also on that film, he's talked about how uh 20th Century Fox had two other really big epic war movies going on, Patton and Tora Tora Tora. And so he said one of the reasons that he was able to get away with directing the way that he directs on this studio movie is that they weren't really paying attention to him. They weren't yeah. they weren't too worried. Yeah. They were their energy was focused on their two big epics, not yeah. MASH. Um, so MASH was a surprise to everybody. I think the actors were probably surprised that the movie turned out good. The studio was surprised that it made money and people liked it. So um, that clout, he he was able to use that clout throughout the 70s to make continue making films that way. Um, and yeah, that, was the, that, that was the era of the auteur of New Hollywood. And <clears throat> when the New Hollywood bubble burst... Um, his Hollywood career came to an end for like 10 years, you know, yeah. he yeah. started to start working independently. So, but so he, always, he always was kind of independent. It was kind of like he would get money from the studio and then kind of go off and do his thing. Yeah. I'm going to say it's a very new Hollywood way to direct. Cause mm-hmm. um, I know with Hitchcock, ding, 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 Lewis is going to talk about Hitchcock again, um, <laughs> that he would storyboard everything out. And by the time it came to actually filming it, he would be like, that would be the boring part because he'd already mm-hmm. filmed it in his head. He knew exactly yeah. what he yeah. wanted, what shot, you know, stories of him falling asleep on set while actors are doing takes. Cause he was just like, I'm just, <laughs> just, this is like the legwork kind of thing. It's so different to this type of ask at, you know, directing where Ullman, as you said, Brandon would just come onto set and kind of go off vibes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just want, yeah. you know, have a, have a loose skeleton that he wants, you know, the marks that needs to hit, but everything else, um, would come together, which I think is really, really fun way to direct because you get like you yeah. get these characters to be able to bloom a little bit, and the actors can flex their muscles and kind of you know Richard E. Grant perhaps wouldn't have been as memorable <laughs> if he had just been scripted. You know, half right. of this comes with like the looks and the you know and oh, the, yeah. the cigarettes being lit on the candlesticks <laughs> when he's snuffing them out and things like that, um, which potentially wouldn't have been scripted, but they're just kind of letting him run free yeah well you also have to uh make sure that well i mean you have to have a good script and you have to cast right and you have to hire the right crew yeah if you're gonna direct like that 
you know. Um, yeah, for me, everyone that came onto the screen, I was like, I know this person. I know this yeah. person. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if that was just because it was like I wanted to check with you all. Is that was that the same case for you? We you for know, the most every, part, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even the guy we had just finished Ted Lasso. <laughs> the guy yeah. <laughs> the guy from Ted Lasso is in it. Yeah. Um he's uh who, who? it's uh, Higgins. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> which guy is Higgins? I don't remember. Higgins so, is so the one characters, of the characters. I do not remember the names. Yeah, Higgins is. I mean, Higgins is his name in Ted Lasso. I forget the oh. actor's name, um, but he's one of the downstairs, one of the butlers. Um, yeah, just look oh. at the cast of Ted Lasso, okay. Zach, and you'll yeah. You'll, <coughs> Jeremy you'll recognize Swift. It. Okay, so what's funny is the first time I saw this. When I, when I was 14 or however old I was, the weird part was I don't think I was very good at recognizing actors at that time mm. because there were actors in this movie that I had seen or that I saw later that I didn't realize were in this, even though I'd seen it. But Kelly McDonald, I don't yeah. think I ever, I don't think I became aware of Kelly McDonald like, as an actor until No Country for Old Men. Her performance in that, like, was really... That was where I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know she was Scottish. Not realizing that I had seen this and I had seen Train Spotting. Yeah. Which she's, yeah. she's a prominent figure. And so, like, I, I think I just, like, never registered her after seeing the movie. So when I watch it now, it's more of that, like, I know that part. Now that, I, like, I feel like I've seen more stuff where I'm like, okay, I, I recognize that guy and that guy and her. I have seen them in other things, so not so much the first time I saw it, though. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, I think yeah the same. It was just Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry, I, I do remember, and yeah. uh, Brandon. This is comes into our blasphemy episode, where I trash talked Jacques Tati, the French yeah. director, <laughs> and Stephen Fry's character is like totally styled after Jacques Tati's. <laughs> Yeah. character monsieur hulot that's just the well one he's tall enough but like just the the way he stands the way he carries himself the pipe and everything so i thought that was funny even though I don't yeah know. for sure i mean for sure it, it's definitely like i picked up more um on the the brilliance i guess of this film the accomplishment of this film i think the second time i watched it because i realized that you know there's a very real like satirical thing going on mm -hmm. with the film um but you're not necessarily i don't know if you're necessarily in on the joke the whole time because mm -hmm. it's also very serious like it feels like yeah. a very serious drama at the same time and it's an interesting um, balance that it weaves in and out of that way throughout mm -hmm. the film, uh, because the ending also is very emotional with you know Helen Mirren and her whole scene and stuff, and and it feels real. You know, it doesn't feel yeah. it doesn't feel like uh, it's been unearned, even though a lot of the film is satirical. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I do like all the scenes with the inspector, and I really like the assistant as well. I liked him a lot the second yeah. time I watched it. 
noticed all of his background stuff. Yeah, <laughs> Basically, pointing, pointing out all the clues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, what's what's really um, kind of funny is that recently I've been um, uh, subscribed to Audible and I listen to audiobooks as I fall asleep yeah. just to. This is not a sponsorship. It isn't. There's other audiobook streaming services available. Um, But part of the Audible uh, membership is the complete works of um, Sherlock Holmes read by Stephen Fry. And that's what I've been listening to recently. So it's very weird to hear Stephen Fry read Sherlock Holmes as a very competent (laughs) investigator (laughs) and then to watch this where he's literally just sitting on clues and (laughs) <laughs> touching everything before they've dusted for prints and right. just being a general buffoon, um, which, I, I, you know, is playing against who Stephen Fry is as a person. He's very mm-hmm. intelligent. Yes. Um, and, and just leaning heavily into the the point that the film is making about class, right? Because yeah, yeah. He doesn't care about the, the downstairs people. He just... Yeah. He cares about the important people. There's that, there's that one moment, and this is not with him, but... I feel like it's the the line that basically is like the whole point that the movie is trying to make is the it's uh, William Gambon's daughter and the guy who they they've they've had had an affair mm. and they sneak off and and this is kind of one of those moments where the camera is like hiding behind like you know the plants almost mm-hmm. and like spying on them and then they hear something and Richard E Grant walks in. And uh, he says, "Oh, don't worry, he's nobody." So she she says, "Like you, you really should make your presence known before you walk yeah. in." And, and he said, "Don't worry, she's he's nobody." And that yeah. that that's it. Like that's the whole movie right there, right? Yeah, like in yeah, terms yeah. of like the point of how the uh, the upstairs view the downstairs, and yeah. And I think like Stephen Fry's character is a perfect um, middle class. You know, he comes in mm-hmm. and he's he's you know above the the. Um, the downstairs, um, mm-hmm. but he's also watching his airs and graces <laughs> around yeah, the hut when yeah. he's talking about his wife, and he's like, "Well, you know how women are, or, or you know, wives." Yeah. <laughs> he's still kind of trying to, you know, fit in to that. You know, he's not comfortable there either. Um, so it it does, yeah, it shows kind of every <laughs> every type of person <laughs> in England at this time. Also, uh, one of my this is a really stupid joke, but it's one of my favorite jokes that people do is when people call someone by the wrong name, his name is Tom Thompson. Yeah. And someone calls him Thomas. Yeah. Detective Thomas. That yeah. That's anytime you do that in a movie, I'm probably going to laugh. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you think it's, about, it's you know, stupid, but it is funny. I mean, if you think about like the detectives of the fiction that this is kind of based on, it's, it's like their name sells the series, whereas with right. Thompson is so bland. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it isn't even, for a while I was like, we're not even going to know what it is. Because mm-hmm. every time he mm-hmm. starts to say it is interrupted or, right. you know, somebody comes in, um, which I found very funny. Because, you know, Miss Marple or Poirot or Sherlock Holmes or, you know, whoever, mm-hmm. it's it's their name that sells the story. Whereas this is like, actually is very inept. <laughs> right. Again, turning the the genre, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, on its head. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think this is a film that's going to definitely improve um, with future watchers um, when I'm not so wrapped up in in who did it and why. 
you know, mm-hmm. when I, now that I don't have to guess and try and follow it, I can just kind of sink into it a little bit more. I think it's definitely gonna gonna improve for me. Not yeah. saying that I didn't like it before we get to the the ratings. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, uh, what what are some of your? Because this this is a movie where I'm like, I don't I don't know. If, I I have a lot of favorite details or favorite moments that I wouldn't even describe as being like full scenes. What were some of your guys' favorite details? Just little, little things. So I was going to say earlier when we were talking about the, the level of detail and the, the actor, you know, just letting the actors kind of improvise or, you know, live in the scene, you know, everybody Mm -hmm. is, is mic'd up and acting when the cameras are rolling. There's like a scene where it's before they really discuss the reason that they're counting knives, where the one of the downstairs people is counting the knives mm-hmm. and then gets interrupted mm-hmm. for a second and then like frustratingly goes back to like has to start recounting the knives was just a like a it just felt so real to me. I don't know. Yeah. Just when I was watching the scene, just realizing like um Again, this was the second time I watched it, and there were so many details I missed the first time I watched it because I was just super tired, and yeah. then mm-hmm. just so much information. So, um, yeah, watching the second time when they were counting knives, I I <laughs> I, I for- completely forgot, you know, that that was even a part of it. You know, that that was that there's a knife missing, and then there's a knife used to stab him. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that whole little detail yeah. was cool. Yeah, I really liked the Richard E. Grant. Anytime he was yeah. on the screen, it was um, big thumbs up. Um, Maggie Smith um, getting more and more annoyed by Ivan Novello play, <laughs> playing the piano <laughs> is is a great great scene. It's like, oh, another one. <laughs> Just the kind of the backhanded, you know, it it said with the right tone, it could sound quite pleasant, but from Maggie mm-hmm. Smith, it's just dripping with acid. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah uh, um, again, if you have access to like the DVD or the Blu-ray, mm. I would really recommend Julian Fellows' commentary. Um, yeah. Altman usually does good commentaries, and I, I don't... Um, I don't I I don't know about his commentary on this one, but for some reason I went to the fellows commentary and probably because I've listened to Altman a lot. Um, and there's so many things that uh, in terms of details that it, that are brought into the movie deliberately that he's brought in that I wouldn't they're not things that you would consciously necessarily notice like. Yeah. Um, and one of the things with that Maggie Smith and Ivor Novello is he was like saying that these upper class people, they did not like popular entertainment. Like to Smith's character going to the opera or going to Mm. see a play, that would be entertainment theater, going to Mm. an orchestra, see an orchestra perform motion pictures, like, (laughs) and and you see it with the, the, uh, the downstairs people like um, Emily Watson, we haven't talked yeah. about her much. She's got all the film stars pictures on 
the yeah. wall. There's the one guy who really wants to be um, the the footman or the the he wants to take care of Ivor Novello's. You know, that's Higgins. Clothes. Okay, that's Higgins. Yeah, okay, yeah. so that like he, you know, his starstruck. <laughs> no one in the upper. Uh, you know, the upstairs, they're not starstruck. They don't care about movies. Uh, as as the years would go on, they would not care about television. Yeah. And even he said, like, he's like, you know, I'm, I don't, I, maybe this was recorded before he won the Oscar, but he's like, you know, I, I've just written this movie and I, I got nominated for an Oscar and I still have, I have an like an older great aunt who said something like, how's that play that you wrote? Like <laughs> she was not even acknowledging like that. He's just made a, mo- a Hollywood movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so like, that is not something that I would have like consciously noticed, but then it just makes Maggie Smith's disdain for Ivor Novello all the yeah. more fun to me. Yeah. Like, of course she would hate him. Yeah. And you know, that other girl is like, again, she's one of the upstairs, but she's not from that no. much money. So, so she's allowed to like a film star, you know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I, I think my favorite, well, Maggie Smith has that great line where she's like, tell us how it ends. None of us are going to see it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but my favorite Maggie Smith moment, and it, cause it, it, it caused a laughing chain reaction for me when I most recently watched it, is when after Ryan Phillippe's character has been outed mm. and the uh the footman or the butler spills the coffee on his pants and she just starts like she's sitting on the couch next to him and she just starts cackling yeah and it's like the the it's like one of the only times in the movie i feel like where she has a moment of joy because she's like stressed Mm -hmm. this whole weekend right Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. she's worried that her her she is the wife's aunt right She's worried that she's going to get her allowance cut off. That, that's yes. amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was trying to like trace the, the connection between her and the Gammon character, but um, just that moment of joy. Like she started la- cracking up laughing. And then I started laughing and I had to pause the movie because I was just <laughs> laughing from it. But I, I think one of my favorite things is every time Morris Weissman makes a phone call <laughs> because he actually is kind of breaking down yeah. The 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 movie for us in a way uh if you're at least in, if in, you're an American audience where he's like telling them we have to change the script because the the way we've written it is not how it really is like he's like shocked he's like we've got a cockney maid coming in and saying funny lines <laughs> these people don't say anything yeah. they don't talk <laughs> they have to rewrite it yeah, um, I I also was trying to figure out. I'm pretty sure that Wiseman, the producer, doesn't at at no point in the movie am I sure that he actually knows a murder actually happened while he was there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I'm gonna be thinking about that the next time yeah. I watch this because I don't think I ever when, noticed like, that. Because when like he may, I'm pretty sure he starts. He's on the phone when uh-huh. the murder happens. Yeah. And the next time we see him, he's still on the phone. 
Yeah. And the, and and like and even the inspector comes in and mm-hmm. they're like, "Don't worry about him. He's an American. Right. Ignore yeah. him. Yeah. He's still on the phone. Yeah. He has no idea that a murder <laughs> happened. That his yeah. movie is happening in real life. Right. 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 Yeah. And he's just on the phone the whole time. And then they it it like it. There's no point where his character acknowledges that a murder happened. And yeah, isn't <laughs> it? That's interesting. I didn't notice that. Yeah, the scene that you were talking about is like where Ryan Phillippe gets the 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 hot coffee on his uh, trousers. Is that he he comes into that scene as well and tells the the footman, "I'm waiting for a phone call." So can you just let me know when it mm-hmm. comes through, like for the third time? Right. So he's still kind of waiting on these phone calls when all this all this stuff is going on. I think, yeah, I'm definitely going to watch it like that again. <laughs> he also says, uh, he also says when he tells, uh, was it Chris Christens Scott Thomas? Is that the actress who plays like the yes. lady of the house? Yes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he tells her that he needs to make a phone call later. And he's like, I'll reverse the charges, of course. And Julian yeah. Fellows is like, they would not care. <laughs> like, yeah. the, the, they, their relationship with money is so is, is such yeah. that him saying they would reverse the charges is like, you know, it, it's it's like a rich person who doesn't know how much a gallon of milk costs yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> what, uh, what 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 what's the line from from uh, Arrested Development? Like, what what? What could it be? Ten dollars. The, the old the, the mother or something says something like, like what what does this cost? Ten dollars or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's something like that in there. Yeah, <laughs> I've only seen it in memes, so I don't. Um, but uh, another another thing that interests me, and I think we kind of touched on this, is how the the secrets are kind of such that like uh, everybody actually knows all the secrets. Yeah. They just can't talk about them. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there's a, there's a pretty interesting part where <coughs> the daughter uh, Gambin and uh, I think the character's name is Isabel. It's Michael Gambin and Kristen Scott Thomas's daughter is talking to the Emily Watson character and she's trying to, because she's trying to get her dad to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I think write a check to the the guy who's blackmailing her or whatever. And uh, she says something to suggest that she knows that her dad is sleeping with Emily Watson. Hmm. Like she said, maybe you could talk to him. You know, like yeah, because you're intimate with him, and like it's this awkward moment for Watson because. It's like she's not allowed to acknowledge that no. with someone of that status. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, even though I know it's coming, well, I guess it, it had been a, when I when I watched it a few weeks ago. Uh, it had been a couple of years since I've seen it. So when Emily Watson speaks up at the dinner, I gasped. You know, <laughs> even though I because like I forgot about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no, what, no, you know, uh, you and, and, solid it, fork. <laughs> yes. And, but it's, uh, it's like the taboo of acknowledging it is yeah. worse than the fact that all these people are cheating on their spouses and sleeping yeah. with people, taking advantage of power. It's like everyone just accepts that that happens mm-hmm. as long as you don't break the rule of talking about it. 
or or, yeah. or acknowledging it the way that yeah. she did in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think that's a a an very I, I like the way the movie does that and the way it handles it. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I think the whole way through, especially with that kind of dynamic, is it's setting us up for the big quote unquote the big reveal is that like everything that happens really stems from the upstairs sleeping with the downstairs. You know, we yeah, get, yeah. there's a lot of, you know, that tension is there throughout. Um, there's a lot of the scenes of like the upstairs kind of um, sneaking off for a quickie with the downstairs, like mm-hmm. the, you know, Oh, he's nobody scene. Um, and the whole time it's kind of right there in front of us. Like it's telling us that this is why this is happening, but it's right. never explicit until Helen Mirren, who is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, gives the speech. And we kind of realized that um, that she had, you know, foreseen. She knew where to put it so that mm-hmm. he would drink it. You know. I also think that the murder is interesting mm. because when she goes in, you know what's happening. Yeah. And it's like, oh, the movie tells you when it happens that she murdered him because yeah. you you know she's poisoning him. <clears throat> But yeah, then he even it's takes still... a sip and he's like, ah! right. Yeah. And it, so it's like, oh, th- she's the one who did it. But then there's the guys, the mystery figure sneaking in and stabbing yeah. him. So there is, yeah. uh, that is kind of interesting because you don't see that in whodunits, in mysteries yeah. or murder movies like this. Yeah, exactly. It's it's normally kind of like a gimmick, but this is very, it's up front. But like we said, it's it's lost within the, the dialogue is lost within mm-hmm. the hundred other things that are happening in the house. Right, right. It's kind of it's a it's a perfect example of hiding in plain sight. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as as the viewer, if you're not if you're like craning your neck to look at something that's happening behind Helen Mirror when she does that, you're gonna miss it. Right. Um, which is, I think, therein lies the beauty of this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's not like the murder is sensationalized either no, in the right, filmmaking yeah. style. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, even handed, handled with humor. You know, when they first kind of pull the body up and mm-hmm. they find the knife, and somebody faints, <laughs> and yeah. Stephen Fry's like, "See, that's why we don't touch the body." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as any any other uh, points that anybody wants to bring up before we rate the film? I don't think so. I I was uh, when this came out. I was, as I've said, I was kind of getting into film at the time. Um, and this is also, I think, like around the time that I first started following the Academy Awards. Yeah. And I was so sure that Robert Altman was going to win. <laughs> Best director. <laughs> yeah. He won the Golden Globe, but I think that's the only thing he won that year mm. for, for Gosford Park. I mean, who was he up against? The... Well, uh, he was up against a pretty stacked group. Um, mm. uh, there was, of course, this was 2001, so Peter Jackson for uh, um, the Fellowship of the Ring. And hold on, before I announce the winner... Um, <laughs> the the winner was Ron Howard for a beautiful mind, Uh-oh. so that was like. Uh... <laughs> but who who were the other two? 
I want to say it was uh, David Lynch for Mulholland Drive. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and this would have been the 2002 <coughs> Academy Awards. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was actually a pretty good best director lineup because mm. it was uh, Ridley Scott for Black Hawk Down, Robert Altman for Gosford Park, Peter Jackson for Fellowship, David Lynch for Mulholland Drive, and Ron Howard for A Beautiful Mind. Huh. Who yeah. Ended up winning. Mm. Yeah. I mean, any of those. I mean, arguably, you know, maybe not Ridley Scott's best film. But no. still, um, but they're all well, iconic, yeah. well directed, and well crafted yeah. film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No one that would have been like, "What are they doing on that list?" I, I actually do not think a beautiful mind is a bad film. <laughs> um, yeah, it, but it's it's just like I, I, I it is definitely the last on my list. Yeah, of, ex- of yeah, in that group. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. So Lewis, is this what it's really like over there? Yeah, this is what um, this is the life that Chelsea and I are going to be living now. Um, we will the be downstairs, right? You'll be um, a, a yeah. footman. And... <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's quite funny. We we went to like there's a lot of old manor houses that are kind of part of the National Trust, which is you know like a, mm-hmm. they keep it so you can go and have a look around these old stately homes yeah. and stuff. And Chelsea took some photographs of Amelia playing. They had like some toys for her to play with outside. Um, but she had positioned it so it just looked like Amelia was in front of this huge house playing with like a football or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she had someone from um, America that was like, is this where you're living now? <laughs> and it was like, no, this this manor house is not where we're living. <laughs> it's it's unfortunately, you know, part of a bygone era. Um, <laughs> but... I mean, it's it's part of our history. This kind of went mm-hmm. on for a long time, I believe. So, yeah, I'm sure somewhere there's still, you know, footmen. And I mean, I'm, I'm, there was a whole Fraser episode, like in the early 2000s, where he gets a butler that's English. Um, so it's obviously still, you know, a trope still kind of going on, I guess. Yeah, but I've never come across it. <laughs> Well, and in, in interest in it is is uh, kind of never ending because mm. Downton Abbey that's like a global yeah. sensation. People love yeah. that show. Yeah. Um, and uh, not not that it, it necessarily deals with the same exact world, but The Crown is about the royal yeah. family, not this, but the popularity of The Crown. So people are people like watching the this this world uh, mm. unfold. And yeah. like seeing the the ins and outs and the the, the yeah. lie the lying and the scheming and the yeah. <laughs> the dirty secrets of the upper the, class. That's right. Yeah. The dirty secrets of the upper class is kind of exactly yeah. it. Yeah, I mean it's also <clears throat> I mean it's different in America, obviously, but it feels not dissimilar to, you know, what's going on with the writer strike and the actor strike and like these out of touch executives yeah. versus right um yeah the working the, class the hard working yeah nothing <laughs> would look the way it is if it wasn't for the downstairs yeah right yeah, yeah there there was like a video i think this was like during covid uh but there was a video of an actor who was doing like a uh, virtual audition and he was like auditioning from his home, like via Zoom. Yeah. And uh, 
<laughs> the director had his mic off and was like, or his mic on and was like talking about, it's like, I hate having to see these like trashy apartments that they live in or something like that. Um, oh gosh. <laughs> and uh, so this guy's video went viral of, I mean, that's, that's what, you know, people are dealing with and, and yeah. you know, and, uh, out, out of touch, rich people in, oh, yeah. in Hollywood versus the work people who have to work. Yeah. Yeah. By accident, yeah. we've managed to marry those two pretty well together, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right. Let's guess what we rated the film on Letterboxd. Yes. Zach, I'm going to say that you gave it a heart. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fallback on that old trusty prediction. <laughs> I'm gonna say got one right. <laughs> um, Lewis, I'm gonna say you rated it. Uh, I'm gonna say, hmm, I'm gonna say you rated it a four. Cool. Um, uh, I'm gonna say Zach, it was a heart, and Brandon, I think three. Am I guessing two? Yes. Okay, because I, I think mine line up because I, I think, Lewis, you gave it a four. Yeah. And Brandon, I think you gave it a three, but only after your second viewing. Mm. <laughs> Interesting caveat, yeah. What I would think, you have think... said for the first viewing? Mm. What? Oh. Maybe a two. I don't know. I don't know yeah. how big of a leap, but... Yeah. But well, I, I think there's definitely a different star rating from your first viewing to your second viewing. Yeah. Well, you are both correct. I did give it a four. Um, and I, like I said, I think that once I go back and watch it, it will increase once I'm not guessing who done it. <coughs> what about you, Brian? Wait, so you rated it, you rated it what? Sorry, a four. people were texting me. <laughs> a four. <laughs> um, okay, so I was right. Yes, you were. You guys are right as well. Except yeah. I didn't really rate it the first time because it was literally like... So I watched like half of the movie and I was just like so dead and like I mm-hmm. can't... I cannot get through this yeah. right now. And uh, I was watching it with my sister and I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna go to bed. And so I started to turn it off and she was like... Oh. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm, like, want, I'm gonna like it. into it? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so I like turned it back on and sat back down and actually didn't fall asleep. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I don't know. I got. It was such a, um, a, a, like detached watch that I don't. Yeah. I can't. I couldn't actually give you a a rating. Yeah. It was. Yeah. I was just not there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that happens. Um. But yeah, no three on the second one. But you know, I don't think it's a bad movie. You know. It just wasn't for me necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I, I think I will watch it again. And I would like to kind of do a, an Altman just season. marathon. Yeah. Altman season on Film Church. Maybe. Yeah. Might be a good one. That's a lot of movies. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we could pick it up. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta do uh, decades. Yeah, yes. you could just do Altman in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's oh, true. yeah. You know, I I was gonna bring this up earlier, but then I think 
my brain went somewhere else and I made a different point. Alfred Hitchcock was uh, instrumental in, in Altman's career because uh, Hitchcock saw his first feature, The Delinquents, and liked it and hired him to direct a few episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Oh, so, uh. a few, so a few of his earliest actual TV jobs yeah. were Alfred Hitchcock Presents because he said there's potential yeah. in this guy. So That's great. Yeah, that's uh, exactly what a TV show like that should be used for. To give, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> to give people a, a stepping stone. That's awesome. Sweet. I have no idea how to, like, guide someone into, like, Altman, of, like, where to go next. You yeah. Know? Um, I think, I mean, just... Popeye. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. Pop. I think Popeye's a good movie. I really and it's interesting to, to me for the film that Shelley Duvall filmed after The Shining. Mm-hmm. To go from The Shining to Popeye is, is yeah. incredible. So that's why it's on my watch list. <laughs> I actually think um, if you pull up Altman's director credits on uh, Letterboxd, yeah. where they're sorted by popularity, that's not a bad like order to start like tackling him because like his most popular film on there is the long goodbye which is a really good movie (laughs) and and, um i was i i kind of i kind of veer people away from starting with mash not because mash is bad but um mash is definitely one of those movies that certain attitudes are different today so a lot of people are disturbed by sexism in the film. And a lot of people go into it and be like, feel that it's kind of, um, they're uncomfortable with, with it. Yeah. And they don't see what's so great about it. Um, and I, I think that part of that is just, uh, uh, it really is like the difference of the times um, yeah. of, what, of what people were uh, angry about in 1970 versus how people uh, direct their anger at institutions today is a little different. So I think that people saw the sexism differently because of who, um, there's, a, there's a woman character in that film who is the, receives a lot of ridicule from the main characters. Um, <clears throat> but she's also like a, an army brat who like, uh, tries to get them fired, like tries to get them uh, in, uh, arrested yeah. uh, the, b- b- because she's like, you have to follow the other. So, so in 1970, people would see her as like a bootlicker and an ass kisser. And, and I don't think people necessarily see that today, especially if you watch the show where yeah. the characters are softened heavily. And uh, even the, the characters that are, not necessarily villains, but the unlikable characters in the movie become sort of like funny antagonists in the show, you know? So (laughs) people who are fans of the show have a really hard time usually going back to the movie. But because, and the thing is is like, it's like, I I don't want people to watch MASH and then go, I'm done with Altman because his seventies work is, is just pretty out there and pretty great. A lot of it. Awesome. Um, and, and uh, the films that were less popular in the 70s seem to have kind of 
bubbled to the top in terms of of popularity. They've sort of been discovered by a new audience, and people are like, "This is really good." I can't believe audiences didn't respond to this when it came out. You know. Um, so yeah, the long goodbye is a good. Especially, this is also a weird movie, Gosford Park, because Altman, when I think of Altman, I think of Americana. His movies are very, very American. Like, he's, he's rooted in American iconography. And so, it's kind of weird to jump in with this British film. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've added a few to my watch list, so I'm sure in future weeks there'll be a few ticking off. Cool. Speaking of ticking off things in future weeks, yeah, what the heck are we watching <laughs> next week? Well, seeing as I've been away for a while, I thought I'm just going to hit reset and do the biggest Lewis pick that's ever been picked. Um, <laughs> we talked about it last time that I was on the show before I took my hiatus. Um, Brandon, I'm going to make you watch City Lights from 1931. Okay. The Charlie Chaplin film. Nice. Um, one of my all-time favorites. I'm I'm in need of a good, good cry, and mm-hmm. I want you to see it. So next week we'll be watching City Lights from 1931. Crying together. Can That's can right. I can I tell you something that might make you wince, but speaks to the power of City Lights? Please. There was a period of my life where I uh, was um, between apartments and I was uh, hopping from from sort of couch to couch when I first moved to Austin. And uh, I I didn't have a a computer. I only had a phone. And uh, I started going to a coffee shop and, and just using their Wi-Fi to watch movies on my phone. Um, so the first time I ever saw City Lights, I watched it on an iPhone, which is actually much smaller than the one that I have now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is a 20, yeah. <laughs> 2012 or 2013. Um, so that's the part that would make you wince is the first time I saw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shit! If I wasn't sitting in that coffee shop with tears running down my face, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's it didn't. It's it did, you can, even watching it on an iPhone for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was like, oh, damn. Yeah, that was a good movie. Well, dang. Movie. So yeah, I'm in for a tearjerker. I guess <laughs> if I don't yeah. cry now, <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> then uh, yeah. What does that say about me? I yeah. set the standard. i'm just kidding um it's being brought to the table so it's gonna be good bro you know a little bit yes i know (laughs) um well sweet that'll be next week back to regularly scheduled programming lewis broadcasting from his new place in the uk that's right and uh but that brings us to the end of the show of course you can find us on social media at film church radio and you can follow us individually on letterboxd i am at selman scope lewis is at walker lewis 3007 to keep up with what we've been watching 
We also have all of our back episodes streaming on all good podcast platforms. Please leave us a rating and review so that we know if you like the film and if you didn't, what you would pick for us to watch in the future. Thank you again, Zach, yes. for you, Zach. bringing us this film. And uh, thank you, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, into man. the church. <laughs> it's and also all the great information as well, which is just adds more context to the film, which is much appreciated. Yes. There's a another podcast that I occasionally listen to that deals with film, and they use a phrase that I really like because that's probably the reason I, I listen to them. Uh, they refer to themselves as connoisseurs of context. Yeah. And that is like the bread and butter. It's like, I yeah. love the context of, yeah. <laughs> of, of a movie. Yeah. You know, I love all that stuff. So <laughs> I'm happy to, to provide. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everybody else, for being here. And we will see you next Sunday for more Film Church Radio. The only thing left to say is. Constable, I'm glad I've caught you. I'm assuming that the inspector won't keep everyone behind tomorrow, but I thought I'd check with you. Well, we haven't spoken to all the servants. Uh... There you are, Dexter. Come along, we're going home. I was just asking the constable how long our guests will be staying. Only Miss Croft has the meals to arrange, and one of the housemaids is anxious to get away. Oh, that'll be all right. I'm not bothered about the servants, just the people who might have had a real connection with the dead man. Sweet. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that was probably the worst British accent I've ever done. I might redo that in private. Do it. Oh. Yeah. And scene. <laughs> That's it. Awesome. Amen. Amen. Oh, yeah. Amen. 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 <laughs>